my kitchen, there is a daily calendar. And it's one of those ones where you rip a page away every day. A lot of you have those kinds of calendars. One of my favorite ever was the far side, you know, daily calendar. You just kind of rip those off. But this one is called the Life Hack, the Daily Life Hack Calendar. And I, I wrote about this a, a month or so ago. And so it's basically every day there's some kind of fabulous tip, some kind of do-it-yourself idea. And the, the calendar I have promises uh, tips, tricks, and daily do-it-yourself projects to make your life a little more awesome. Well, who doesn't want a life that's a little more awesome? I certainly want a life that's a little more awesome. If you've never heard of the phrase life hack, don't Google it, because you're going to get about 6.9 million different things that is said there. But it, it's actually made its way to Merriam-Webster, the dictionary. And Merriam-Webster defines the noun as usually a simple and clever tip or technique for accomplishing something, uh, some familiar task more easily and efficiently. Well, we're beginning today a series called Faith Hacks. Life hacks for faith, for our spiritual journey. And there is a difference between a secular life hack, like how to ripen your tomatoes faster, or than it is about a faith hack, about a spiritual journey. One deals with surface things. That's the life hacks. Faith hacks deal with the core of our being. Life hacks focus on technology, efficiency, and productivity. Faith hacks focus on spirituality, humanity, and the mystery of God. Life hacks are quite often just a a single-time, one-off thing that we can do, whereas a faith hack, a spiritual hack, is way different. It typically requires repetition, the formation or cessation of a habit that makes our lives more meaningful long-term. And the ultimate goal of a faith hack, a spiritual hack, is to ultimately become the man or the woman that God has created us to be. And so for the rest of this month, next week, we're going to have a faith hack on happiness. What is the source of true, ongoing, inner, outer, the whole deal happiness? And on the 26th, we're going to look at gratitude, faith hack on on how to be grateful even when things around may not seem like they're, they're going the way we wish they would. What is the source of gratitude, the source of happiness? But today, we're not hiding it. We're talking about forgiveness. A spiritual hack, a faith hack about forgiveness. Now, some of you might say, because you remember every word I've ever spoken, every sermon series I've ever done here, you say, but Pastor Matt, you've preached on forgiveness again. And I say, you think? At least three or four times every year, because it is so paramount in terms of what our Christian journey is, about what our relationships are. The last time I preached it actually was a little while ago. It was during a sermon series called Easier Said Than Done. And it's easier to say, I forgive you, than to actually be the person who extends forgiveness. And so I have a very brief text, very brief text. And if you feel cheated that I'm only reading uh, two verses for this sermon, there's a Bible there. You can just keep reading all you want. But here are the, the texts that I have for us from the 18th chapter of Matthew. Then Peter came and said to him, him being Jesus, Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? And I want to pause there. That doesn't happen at churches, does it? 
People in a, in, a, in a community of faith never do anything that, that would need forgiveness, and when it comes to the rest of the community, does it? How many times should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Other translations, maybe the one you grew up with in church says 70 times seven. It's still the, the same answer either way. The word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. And so I read a biblical commentator on this uh, that said this, basically, Peter accepted the fact that if we're going to follow Jesus, forgiveness simply has to, it must take the place of vengeance in the heart of every single disciple. But Peter still did not like the idea very much. He wanted to know how often he had to do it. He wanted a number to work with because forgiveness does not come naturally to human beings. He was looking for Jesus to say, okay, you know, Three or four times, five times, right? He wanted a number, so he knew exactly how long he had to put up with something. And, and we ask this, are we to take the 77 or 7 times 70 literally, or is it more figuratively? With a great Scottish uh, commentator, William Barclay, shed some light on this for me. And he actually thinks that Peter was actually being more generous than he needed to be by offering forgiveness up to seven times. And we say, well, why is that? Because taken from the book of Amos in the Old Testament, the common accepted teaching of the rabbis in the culture into which Peter was born and the generations that preceded him, the rabbis say you forgive someone maximum three times. If they wrong you once, offer forgiveness. Twice, forgiveness. Three times, forgiveness. But after that, they're out. They're out. And so here is Peter saying, okay, I grew up hearing three. I'm going to be benevolent, give six, and just one more for good measure. Is that enough, Jesus? Is that enough? And yet Jesus says, no. You see, Peter probably thought he was going to be commended. That a boy, Pete. You're going the extra mile. But no. When Jesus says 77, he's basically saying there is no, and this, these are the words of Barclay, there is no reckonable limit to forgiveness. Now, you may be sitting here, and maybe you've been in, a, in an abusive relationship at some point in your life, and you read this, and you just want to throw the Bible away. I'm just supposed to sit here and take it? He's going to do that to me? Again, that's not what this means. It doesn't mean that we stay in an abusive relationship or situation it means that we forgive and move on, and in doing so, we actually free ourselves. We know that Jesus had a lot to say about forgiveness. If you go to BibleGateway.com and just type in forgive, it will lead to all the forgive and forgivenesses, and you see a lot of those are written in red because they are the words of Jesus. Retired United Methodist Bishop, Bishop uh, William Willimon, says this, All those times when Jesus walked about Galilee on bright days... He was forever walking up to folks and without warning saying to those whom he met, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and go, sin no more, your sins are forgiven. Willimon kind of observes, people didn't just come up to Jesus and ask to be forgiven. They just didn't walk up to him and say, forgive my sins. No, Jesus knew that without forgiveness being the first word, there would be no meeting of God and humanity. No, I saw something on the news uh, this week, and I know maybe a lot of you saw it as well. 
I saw it on, uh, I think it was ABC on Tuesday, but this individual had already been on, I think, Good Morning America or the Today Show on Monday. Uh, Mr. Reyes, the fourth grade school teacher at Robb Elementary uh, in Uvalde. Mr. Reyes was in a classroom that after the, the celebration, he only had 11 of his students in the classroom. And then it all went down. And he said to his kids, get under your desks, pretend you're asleep. When that gunman walked into the room, it was silent. He wasn't hitting moving targets. He was just shooting people who were laying under their desk. Mr. Reyes himself was, was shot and was wounded, and, and he saved his life by, by pretending to be dead. But he could hear the kids in the other classroom, the adjoining classroom, trying to reach the police. He could hear uh, all of these things that were going on. He was thinking that they did nothing to protect us. They did nothing uh, to, to prepare us for this. And at least in the clip I saw, Mr. Reyes looked right in the camera, speaking about the police who were outside of the building for more than an hour, and he said, I will never forgive them. I will never forgive them. Now, I've tried to engage a number of people in the church this week about that very statement. About, I asked them if they saw the clip, if they've heard the story, and most people, not all, but the large, large majority of people that I talk with this, they say, man, I, I guess I kind of get it. I'm mad too. I don't know if I would have the capacity to offer forgiveness. And so, Mr. Reyes, you know, we understand he's still in shock. He's still hurt. He's never going to forget the sound of the guns. He's never once going to forget what it felt like to have those searing bullets enter his body. He's never going to forget the cries and the wailing. He had to be hearing the parents outside who were screaming. We kind of get it, but, but is there ever going to be a point in his life that even though he'll never forget, and even though the entry wounds, the scars there are going to be there forever, is he ever going to get to a place where he's able to free himself. Anytime we, we hear about these kind of school shootings, we go back to other school shootings that have happened. And uh, this is a theological term. Doesn't it suck that there are so many examples for us to pull from? Kind of the first one that really hit my consciousness was Columbine. That was such a shock when Columbine happened. These, these two gunmen, you know, who, who go in there. And, and my, my wife is a school teacher. She's in classrooms with, with the students who are, you know, the more difficult kind of, of students. And her job has always been to try and uh, do whatever she can to help these kids, these young people, uh, get their, their diplomas, to get a GED at the very least. And, and a lot of her students are always in trouble. And and, you know, it's always in the back of my mind that, that something might happen, that maybe my wife isn't safe in a public school building. She tells the story of my wife that when 9-11 happened, you know, it happened on a school day during the school hours, and she was teaching in her class, and her, her 
windows and her door had, was, was glass and she could see other teachers kind of scrambling with just like horror on their faces because they had seen what had happened or they had heard. And, and her first thought was, there's another mass shooting somewhere. But no two school shootings are exactly the same and the response to the communities is not exactly the same. And so one of the things that I've been drawn to after hearing Mr. Reyes speak, and again, I don't condemn him by any means. I, I kind of get where he's at right now. But I go back to a shooting that took place in 2006 in October in a very small community called Nickel Mines in Pennsylvania. A small Amish community where a gunman walked into the one-room schoolhouse and just started shooting. Just started shooting. Do you remember that when that happened? I mean, 2006 isn't that long ago. But the, the reaction to that community was different. Sister Joan Chittister, who is um, a Benedictine, um, I did a lot of, of reading of her uh, when I was getting my doctoral uh, dissertation ready because she was talking about the vow of stability, which is the, a huge Benedictine, Benedictine way. And, and she wrote at the time, it was not the violence suffered by the Amish that stunned people. It was that the Amish community simply refused to hate what had hurt them. Boy, is that a sentence? They refused to hate what hurt them. An Amish grandfather standing at the foot of one of the graves said out loud to those who were gathered around, do not think evil of this man. A delegation of Amish visited the family of the killer who killed himself at the end of the rampage and said to them, do not leave. Stay in your home here. And so Chittister wrote, it was not the violence that shocked us, it was the forgiveness that followed it for which we were not prepared. It was the lack of recrimination in the dearth of, a lack of recrimination, the dearth of vindictiveness that left us amazed, left us baffled, left us confounded. She concludes, it was the Christianity we all profess, but which they practiced that left us stunned. Never had we seen such a thing. Powerful stuff. And so forgiveness confronts the reality of what happened, but decides to break a cycle of violence and vengeance and decides to be free of it. To be free of it. And so in preparing for this sermon series, I, I bought a brand new study Bible. It's good for those who get up to preach to every once in a while buy a new study Bible, maybe from a different theological vantage point so that you can kind of be tested. It's, it's good to get a brand new commentary. They come out every year. There's still scholars who are publishing in seminaries to help, to help stay fresh. And so I bought an NIV Life Hack Study Bible. I wish they would have named it Faith Hack. It would have fit so much better with my sermon series. There are 365 spiritual faith hacks to try and get us to do uh, new understandings, to understand new practices, to help us to become the men and women God has created us to be on a variety of topics. And in the entry for forgiveness, it simply says something that we all know. Forgiveness is necessary, 
but it isn't always easy. And I have a confession to make. I have as much trouble with forgiveness as anyone else. As a human being, you know, it's so easy to hold a grudge. It's so easy to say, no, I want to feel this hurt forever and be mad. And yet we know that that is poison. We're actually hurting ourselves. But we're all like that to a measure. It's amazing how upset we can be over even the the faintest of a slight. And if we have a trouble forgiving the, 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 the smallest little thing, how much more difficult is it for us to forgive the huge ones? And so what I really believe is knowing what is and is not required of us can help us through the process of forgiving those who have wronged us. And so let me give you very quickly a few things that forgiveness does require, but then let me give you two things that forgiveness does not require. The first thing that forgiveness requires is simply that we understand what forgiveness is. This week in worship planning, Pastor Andrew said this in our, in our gathering. He said, the meaning of forgiveness means different things to different people. Some people leverage the word forgiveness for their own purposes, which reminds me of something else that Fred Craddock said in a book called Why is Forgiveness So Difficult? Here's what Craddock says, forgiveness is in our vocabulary. In the church, we say it quite a bit. Our frequent use of the vocabulary of forgiveness should not dull our conscience to the fact of its importance, its absolute irreplaceable importance to all of us. We cannot have friends without forgiveness. We cannot have family without forgiveness. We cannot have lasting marriages without forgiveness. But it is difficult. It is very difficult. It's difficult to turn loose pain, especially if the pain has become the center of my new identity. And maybe you have known people that something that happened to them has now become who they choose or what they choose to identify who they are. I don't think that's God's intent for us. I am the person who is wronged. I am the victim. I am the hurt person. And the only person that that kind of mentality hurts is you. Because it doesn't bother the person or the people who have hurt you in the least. And so I know that forgiveness is not an act of will. Forgiveness is a function of grace. Grace. The second thing that forgiveness requires is it requires us to focus on how God has forgiven us. The starting point of our ability to offer forgiveness to somebody else is to remember how we ourselves have been forgiven, to focus on the gratitude for what God has given us in midst of of our selfish, selfish ways. We need to remember what it felt like because my guess is each and every person here has not only had God forgive them, but you've probably all been touched but with the power of the forgiveness of somebody else in your life that maybe restored you just a little bit. Now, you're not going to like this, this next one at all. Forgiveness requires of people of faith an understanding that forgiveness is not optional. 
Forgiveness is not optional. Uh, Gratitude to God will often motivate us to forgive others, but when the hurt and pain is too deep and forgiveness seems impossible, we might need to remind ourselves that it is not optional, especially as people of faith. We all said the Lord's Prayer together here this, this morning. That's a prayer that Jesus taught us. And even when Jesus was teaching us how to pray, Jesus was teaching us about how important forgiveness is. We all said together, whether we were doing it just kind of as a robot on rote or as if we were reading the words, we all said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When I am doing the Lord's Prayer in worship, I always make sure that I read the words because I don't want to go on autopilot. And you know, one of the funny things is anytime a pastor or a different pastor comes up, even on on the same staff, you can have three or four people who are leading worship, and each one kind of has their own cadence to the Lord's Prayer. Have you noticed that? Right? Some people just real fast. Nell Nash is slow, slow. She takes it real slow to help us understand everything. But for me, I I read it so I, I take nothing for granted But I wonder how long it took you all to get used to the the cadence that I have with that. Because when I come to that section of the Lord's Prayer, I always say, forgive us our trespasses. I emphasize our, as we forgive those, and I always wait just, just a tick, those who trespass against us. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, or in that same section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something that should make us really uncomfortable. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Oh, Jesus, why did you have to say that? That is hard It's hard to hear the commandment to forgive. As one theologian said, we who follow Christ are always being commanded to do things that that are simply hard to do or things that we cannot do. We are commanded to love. We are commanded to serve without counting the cost. But the hardest of all is the commandment to forgive, to forgive. Another thing that forgiveness requires is that you know the initiative is on the one who is doing the forgiving. It is the initiative of the forgiver. Forgiveness is first for you, the forgiver, to release you from something that will eat you alive if you do not, something that will destroy your joy and your ability to love fully and openly. Now, sometimes we hold back. We wait until someone seeks our forgiveness before we forgive them. But that's not what we are called to do. That's not what we are commanded to do. As people of faith, Jesus expects us to take responsibility to be the one who forgives. But the final thing about what forgiveness requires is an understanding. It is an ongoing process. It is an ongoing process. We try and think that forgiveness will be a once and for all event, but it is not. Jesus reminds us that some people, some situations, some systems are going to have to be forgiven more than once. Forgiveness has a lot of requirements, but equally important is to realize what forgiveness does not require. Forgiveness does not require that you forget. 
No, forgiveness does not require that you forget. Forgiveness is not about forgetting. It's about letting go of another person's throat. We can forgive without forgetting the situation that caused the pain. For instance, if someone has physically abused you in the past, you can forgive them without ever having to place yourself into a situation where that abuse or that harm can continue. You let go of it. Forgiveness might lead you to seek reconciliation, but we are not required to put ourselves in danger. Rose Sweet said, while God commands us to forgive others, he never told us to keep trusting those who have violated our trust or even to like being around those who hurt us. A number of years ago, a book written and kind of self-published just took off. It, it went viral as a book. Can a book go viral? It, it just it went everywhere. The Shack, Paul Young, and I was told that... We did a church-wide reading of that maybe 14, 15 years ago when it first came out. And in this book, we know that the father has had something horrific happen. And like Mr. Reyes there in Uvalde, he, he, he's really struggling with, with being able to forgive something that was such a horror, so unthinkable. And so the character says, is it all right if I'm still angry? And the God character, and I actually read the, how many of you read the book back in the day? The God character who's called Papa is actually a large African-American woman, and I always thought they should cast Oprah for that, right? And, but they didn't. But God said in response to, is it all right if I'm still angry? Absolutely. Anger is the right response to something, but, but don't let the anger and pain and loss you feel prevent you from forgiving him and removing your hands from around his neck. It's okay to be angry, but forgiveness still needs to happen. And so, you know, I don't want you to feel cheated, so I actually went and looked at the biblical word, the Greek word for forgiveness, and it's a word called aphiami, aphiami. Say that with me, aphiami, aphiami. And that, that definition means to send away, to keep no longer to not allow, to not hinder, to give something up, to leave, to go away from one. And what we're doing when we forgive is we are going away from the pain. We are freeing ourselves. So forgiveness does not require we forget, but forgiveness also does not require that we necessarily have a face-to-face -face meeting or that there is going to be a restoration of a relationship. As a matter of fact, I know firsthand sometimes forgiveness can happen after the other person has passed away. I came to forgive my father years after he was dead. And I didn't even realize the weight that I was walking around with until I came to that moment. Came to that moment where I was able to forgive him and, and really start to cherish memories. Memories that I had kind of, kind of blocked. But in this, this book, The Shack, the God figure says, forgiveness does not establish a relationship. Forgiveness is first for you, the forgiver, to release you from something that will eat you alive, that will destroy your joy and your ability to love. Forgiveness does not create a relationship. Unless people speak the truth about what we have done and change their mind and behavior, a relationship of trust is simply not possible. When you forgive someone, you certainly release them from judgment, but without true change, no real relationship can be established. And so Max says, so forgiveness does not require me to pretend that this ever happened. 
And God says, no, no. And so, friends, in many ways, one of the most important tenets in our faith, one of the greatest symbols of our faith is actually a symbol of forgiveness. Forgiveness, and, and with that forgiveness, there is victory. There is a life that is yet to be lived. And so may God bless all of us as we learn to forgive others because we have been forgiven. And in the process, may God give us the strength to forgive ourselves. Amen.